Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. This is Mark Daly, Mark Hamilton, coming to you from the Race Weekend Studios in beautiful Vancouver, British Columbia. We're now just hours away from Free Practice One in Mexico City. We have five Grand Prix left. This championship is going down to the wire. My friend, how the heck are you? I am doing good, sir. We are on the cusp of another weekend, a race weekend nonetheless, and happy Diwali to all of you who are celebrating Diwali today. It's, well, almost over, but uh, it's been a good time. You know, I'm lucky to work in a company with lots of Indian people, so we were full-on party mode today and a catered lunch to boot. So it's been it's been a very, very good day. I mean, I'm, I'm just, I'm buoyant, I guess you could say, is the, the, the correct way to explain my mood. Somewhat weirdly. <laughs> <laughs> and you've had a busy evening as well. So yes. for those of you that joined us tonight on the Spaces chat, was it the biggest group, but probably one of the funnest Spaces sessions we've we've ever had. There were a lot of really great laughs, but while we were doing the Spaces ch- chat, and credit to you for joining in, you were busy recording a, another podcast. Maybe you want to spill the beans and share th- with the audience what you were up to tonight. So yeah, I was. Uh, we were contacted late this afternoon by our good friend uh, Tim Haraney from the TSN Racing uh, Pod. Uh, asked me uh, one of us to jump on the pod with him and JB tonight so we sat down for about an hour and we talked about uh, all sorts of uh, things uh, very you know some of which we'll probably be talking about shortly so look for that Uh, Tim said it'll drop uh, on Friday so by the time you get done listening to this go search up TSN Racing Pod and look for the latest uh, drop there it was uh, it was good fun it was good fun lots of laughs had by all that's fantastic. And I'm yeah. so glad you were able to represent the Scuderia F1 podcast. That's fantastic. And before we get started, a couple of other things that I really want to call out, and I've been meaning to do this for a while. Obviously, you've heard us speak a lot about our uh, affection and our affinity for the Race Weekend magazine. Mm-hmm. Again, if you haven't subscribed, I highly recommend you do it. It's about 100 bucks for an annual subscription. You're going to get four coffee table-sized magazines. They are beautiful. There is no advertising at all. They are a fantastic showcase just to have in your living room and just to flex on the fact that you're a Formula One fan. And if you have Formula One fans in your life, it's a beautiful Christmas gift. Again, we're saying this for no other reason than we're a fan of the team that's putting that together because we love the product. And the Christmas other is thing- coming and, you know, if anybody's looking to fill, you know, some you know, my, my stocking, you know, I'm just going to put it there. <laughs> the magazines are pretty big, so you're going to need a fairly I'll big get a bigger stocking, stocking then. And uh, the other one too, and this is something that I typically dread. Oh, you dread. So you are going to address Armadillo Gate. Oh my God, no. So I was specifically (laughs) not going to bring that up. And it's funny because now reflecting back over the course of the last week, it's probably not something I should have brought up on the podcast, but (laughs) I was so confident that you were going to be like, I don't know what that is. I've heard the word before, but you knew specifically what it is. It's that shelled Bali type creature. And I literally thought it was a species of horse. And I was kind of putting (laughs) two and two together in my head when we were doing the spaces chat last week. Cause like somebody had asked me like, Oh, ask the folks that were at the race. If they saw the armadillo racing, I'm like, Oh yeah, for sure. probably horse racing at the track. There's a lot going on. (laughs) 
Definitely not. Definitely not way a horse. off base, but yeah, you know, whatever. We and, live uh, and learn, right? In the spirit of humility, I will absolutely eat this one and eat some humble crow. So that's just how we roll. But the other thing too is, and I meant to share this on a previous podcast, but every Monday morning, I tend to have a sense of anxiety when it comes to checking my checking my work email. A lot can build up over the weekend. Oh, dude, In fact, same here. Uh, a lot of the time, though, and I don't know if you do the same thing, I'll typically take a couple hours on a Sunday evening just to kind of carve through some of the mail that's building up just to take some of the edge off. But now I actually get excited for Mondays because in my mailbox, I get a copy of the Engine Failure newsletter that is published by friend of the show, Lily Herman. And I highly, highly recommend cool. everybody subscribe. It's completely free and it's super fun. And it's really just a, a deep dive into the lighter, funner side of Formula One. So if you don't want to hear somebody kind of rehash a collision or a crash on the course, but you want to get into the lighter side of F1 relationships and fashion and just the personality of the drivers and the personnel within the paddocks, awesome newsletter. I tweeted it out earlier this week. I'll tweet it out again, but just in the spirit of promoting and encouraging more people to create fun Formula One content that we can all enjoy, I just wanted to give a couple of shout outs Good from- call the top. But my friend, we've got some stories to get into. So I'll pass the mic back over to you and let you kick this shindig off. Okay, well, let's uh, take a look at a couple of these ones. I, I thought some of the stats that you'd uh, pulled out for this uh, show, I thought was uh, really kind of uh, cool. But before we do that, actually, I think that this one is kind of fun. And we talked about this uh, with, with uh, Tim and JB a little bit earlier, too. But um, Danny Rick was on the Ellen DeGeneres show this week, which is kind of funny, too, because as JB so rightly, uh, you know, pointed out that she was going on, you know, I just discovered Formula One, you know, I, I've been binging it, I've been watching through all these things, and he was like, hang on, hold up, back up, but wasn't Lewis on your show like three, four <laughs> weeks, years ago, and you were like uh, asking him way back then, like like three, four years ago, yeah, what's a pit, pit stop, what's all these, uh, so, no, I'm not calling Ellen out, I'm just, uh, it, it was a bit of a funny moment, but I, I didn't see the clip, I just want to know, does anybody know, did, did Danny convince Ellen to partake in a in a shoey I mean you know just putting it out there so admittedly I've not seen the segment I was and I have this thing where I take fun things and I just put them off into the future like I have to earn it I have to earn it so I'm <laughs> planning to watch it tomorrow after after work that's kind of my reward for the end of a long week a nice cold refreshing coke zero and an episode of ellen with daniel ricardo that's my friday evening all set but i haven't seen it but if anyone's seen it and and you've got some thoughts please post them in the twitter feed or in the live chat here we'll definitely share them awesome all right let's get into some of the fun facts that uh, that you've uh, posted so in the upcoming triple header uk-based f1 personnel which is like what 80% of the teams are going to spend 43 hours flying 300, 428 kilometers to compete in this upcoming triple header. That is a lot of flying time and that is a lot of distance. I just uh, get jet lag just even uh, looking at that one. Just, uh, yeah, don't envy them. I mean, we had a big discussion about you know, the added uh, demand about these, uh, you know, longer, more intense uh, schedules. But that uh, is really a sobering, sobering stat right there. And this is cool, too. Another one that uh, you pulled out here was the uh, team comparison from last year to this year after 17 races. 17 races was the, that was it. That was Finito uh, this time uh, last year. But still, some very, very interesting uh, comparisons. So, you know, or at least in deltas when it comes to, to points. So in 2020, after 17 races, Mercedes had 373 points. This year, after 20, or sorry, 17 races, Mercedes has 
460.5 points. So that is a delta of a minus 112 and a half points. Now, this is where it gets interesting. So Red Bull, after, uh, tw- sorry, 17 races last year, 319 points. This year, 337 and a half, which is an increase of 118 and a half points, which almost completely offsets the amount of points that uh, Mercedes has um, has has bled away over the course of the season. I mean, they're they're up six points uh, on them, uh, you know, o- overall. But I mean, that is uh, amazing. Just the amount of points that uh, Mercedes has literally given to Red Bull or Red Bull has earned. You know, I think that's a, a fascinating statistic. That's exactly the way I look at it as well. And it, I, I kind of have that football mentality when I look at this, where when you're talking about club football, we're not talking about the NFL or college football in the US, but we're talking about professional club football. Sometimes it's it's the mentality when you go into a match is about how many points can I take off the other team? There's three yeah. points available. How many points can I take off? And when I saw this, that was exactly my thought too, which is, wow, Red Bull's gains directly offset Mercedes losses. And mm-hmm. as you go down the rankings, McLaren, who had a really strong year last Last year have continued to improve. They've picked up 52 points. Ferrari has seen monumental gains. They're yes. up 120 points. And I'm not going to do the half points here. I'm going to round up a little bit, but sure. 119.5, 120 points. Alpine has shed 80 points. Alpha Tauri has shed 13 points, if I'm reading that correctly. And Aston Martin has shed an astonishing 113 points. Williams plus 23. Alfa Romeo is basically flat and Haas is basically flat as well, although they haven't scored any championships points yet this year. You know, some of those teams, especially in that, uh, say, bottom half of that table are really quite astonishing. Alpine is that that's that's a big loss there. Obviously, 77 points. Aston Martin, as you say, a monumental loss of 113. But Williams, you know, that's quite encouraging. A 23 points. I mean, after 17 races last year, they had a donut. They had zero points. So, I mean, 23 is, it's it's humble, but it is definitely in the right direction. And I guess the less said about Alfa Romeo and definitely has uh, the, the, the better, but And the other benefit for Williams too, is it's not just the bragging rights. It's the fact that this will potentially translate into tens of millions yeah. of dollars in prize money. And for a team like Williams that has really struggled financially over the course of the last half decade, oh. this is really critical money for them. And I'll, I'll save that because I wanted to get a little bit into the Concord Agreement with one of our stories, but okay. it's incredibly important to have that that cash well, you know, that's actually a good segue into the next uh, story, which is that the having crowds, actually having people back in seats this year has led to a $68 million profit or 50 million pounds over the third quarter of 2021, which is a massive gain over last year, which obviously there was, um, you know, less races. As I said, 17 was the the sum total of the, the number of races we had last year. So from July to September, Formula One generated $668 million or 494 million pounds in revenue, which is an increase up from $597 million or 441 million pounds over the third quarter of 2020. I mean, uh, that that is absolutely uh, you know huge. And I think it just goes to show how... I think they did a very good job uh, that they did to, number one, get the season up and running last year in the way that they did and actually get uh, racing. And and obviously, they're going to take a big financial hit. I mean, who didn't? 
especially in the early days of the pandemic. I mean, we, we everybody from small individual people up to, to big multinational corporations have learned how to function and operate and live in a pandemic. And, you know, one of these days we'll get out of it. But uh, still, it is a, a fascinating stat to, to see that and to see them, you know, rebounding so quickly. I, you know, I, I just can't help uh, but shake the feeling that if, if Bernie was still around, that Formula One would be in such a worse off uh, position than they are right now. Yeah, that that's one of those stories that I think people will ask or talk about around the bonfire for years to come, which is where would F1 be today if it was still being controlled by Bernie? How would F1 have have managed the pandemic if it was being run by Bernie Eccleston? Yep. And ultimately, I, I give... And I say that a lot, so I got to stop saying ultimately because I say it a lot. But I think F1, Liberty, the FIA, the teams, the drivers, they did a fantastic job to put on a 17-race calendar last year. Oh, 100%, and yeah. I think it's really important to backtrack a little bit too and just remind our listeners that F1, the body itself, generates revenue principally through three different channels. They they generate revenue through sponsorships, they generate revenue through race sanctioning fees, and they generate revenue through um, TV revenue. Last year, most of those revenue streams were hugely compromised. A lot of their sponsorship agreements were torn up or they had to renegotiate on the fly, so they brought in less sponsorship money. Last year, they earned almost nothing from race sanctioning fees. And the reason they couldn't earn anything from race sanctioning fees last year was because the race organizers couldn't sell tickets because of COVID. So ultimately, F1 was basically staging these races for free just to get them on TV. So principally, the only real revenue outside of a compromised sponsorship intake was the revenue that they earned from the TV money. So ultimately, staging a 17-calendar race last year was critical for Formula One's bottom line because they required that financial bloodline to get through the pandemic because they weren't earning. Now, the good news this year is sponsorship has come roaring back. TV TV revenue is in a great place because we're in the middle or in the midst of a 22 race calendar. And then finally, because the race organizers are able to sell tickets and we're seeing sold out races everywhere at this point, mm-hmm. Formula One's maximizing and optimizing the amount of revenue that they're able to earn through race sanctioning. So F1's back in a great place. And I'm going to be really curious to see what the two-year comp is like. It's not fair to look at financial comps when you're comparing it against the pandemic year, 2020. I'll be very curious to see what fiscal or calendar 2021 looks like versus 2019. And then what 2022 looks like versus 2019. Because 2019 was the last time we staged a full campaign that was uninterrupted by the pandemic. But it's it's a positive sign for Formula One. And for all of the reasons that I just hinted at a couple of minutes ago, it's ultimately really good for the teams. And I'm kind of going on a side kind of channel here real quick. So if you need to grab a coffee, if you need to go on a bathroom <laughs> break, now's the perfect time to do it because this will take a few minutes before the first break. But the reason it's really important for the teams is every five, every six, every seven years, the FIA, the teams and Formula One come together and they negotiate what's called the Concord Agreement. And the Concord Agreement is basically a financial framework for how the sport's going to work. It dictates the technical um, regulations, it dictates the sporting regulations, but most importantly, it determines 
determines how the money that's earned by F1 is distributed. So ultimately, Formula One is going to keep a chunk of that change. That's their cash. That's how they see value. That's why they're in this business. But a big chunk of the operating income of Formula One is distributed to the teams. Now, historically, these Concord agreements were very, very, very beneficial to the top teams, and they weren't particularly equitable to some of the smaller teams. So when the most recent Concord agreement was renegotiated in 2020, which is now in effect from 2021 to 2025, it completely overhauled the way that prize money was distributed. So in the past, Ferrari, for instance, would get a very significant chunk of change, and we're talking the tens of millions of dollars, just for showing up, just for coming out to winter testing. Here's a check for $50 million or whatever it was, just for being Ferrari because you've been in the championship from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And then a number of other teams would get heritage payments. They would get championships fees. They would also get a check just for showing up to Formula One. And now the balance of the money was distributed in two ways. There were column one payments, which were, hey, look, every team is going to get a specific slice of the revenue. And then there's also going to be a column two, which is every team that competes in the championship and finishes in the top 10 and isn't a first year entry is going to get a certain amount of revenue on a sliding scale. So if you finish first, Mm -hmm. you're going to get disproportionately more money than the team that finishes last. So that's how the prize money was large distributed. Now, it wasn't super equitable. And if you were one of the smaller teams, if you were a Haas or you're a team like that was like a Williams that was struggling, you were in this very challenging and compromising financial position because you're losing, which means you're not achieving any prize money, which means you can't invest your team, which means you can't improve your car, which means you can't hire top drivers. So when they went back and renegotiated, some of the top teams like Ferrari were willing to compromise a little bit more than they had in the past and were willing to give back. So the big teams like Mercedes, the big teams like Ferrari, the big teams like Red Bull are earning less money for just showing up, but they're doing it largely for the betterment of the sport, but also because I think they realize that, hey, if we continue with a Concord agreement like the previous one, we may be a six-team championship at some point in the near future. So the way it works now is Ferrari still does get that one-time special fee, that one-time special payment. It's just significantly less than it would have been in the past. So Ferrari, here's your check. There's also a certain amount of prize money 20% of the earnings that the sport makes above $650 million are split up amongst prior championship teams and any teams that have recently finished in the top three. But the vast majority of the income, 75, 85% of all of the income for the sport is now distributed amongst the teams more equitably. So a smaller team is going to earn significantly more money than they would have before, even if that they're bottom of the standing. So to give you an example, 14% of the prize money goes to the first place team, 13 to second, 12 to third, 11 to fourth, 10 to fifth, 9.6 to 6th, 8.7 to 7th, 7.8 to 8th, 6.9 to 9th, and 6% to the 10th place finisher. Mm. This distribution or this delta between the top earners and the bottom earners has been significantly tightened up versus where it was before, where it may have been two or three or four times greater before. The other final big piece that was achieved with the current 
Concord agreement was that the teams agreed, the FIA agreed, Formula One agreed that any new entries that came into Formula One would have to pay a minimum of $200 million to come onto the grid. Hmm. Now, for that team, the good news is that, hey, you're going to be able to earn prize money from the first year, but it's a way of doing two things. One, it convinces other teams that, hey, it's probably a good thing to have another team because we're going to get to split $200 million of that money because that $200 million is going to be distributed amongst the teams. But the other thing it does is it establishes a baseline value for a Formula One team. Because what F- what Formula One's saying is, hey, if you want to join F1, it's a minimum of $200 million. Think of it as an expansion fee totally. to join yep. our club. So all of a sudden, it meant that the minimum value of any existing Formula One team was at least $200 million. Because if you want to start a team, well, it's $200 million that you just have to hand over to Formula One. But then you need to build a factory. Mm-hmm. And then you have to hire personnel. And then you have to develop IP. That's significantly more expensive than just maybe buying a team. So it also immediately boosted and protected the value of all the existing teams. So I know that's a long roundabout way of kind of explaining it, but just understand that F1 is in a good financial position, but it's also a much more equitable position for the smaller teams who are going to earn disp or I would say proportionately more despite finishing lower in the championship than they would have had before. And over time, especially when you talk about the inclusion of a cost cap, it should create more competitive parity. So long way, I'm done, I promise. (laughs) Well, before we go into a break here, I'm just going to add a a quick quote from uh, Formula One CEO Stefano Domenicali, who said, Formula One said, quote, Formula One is firing on all cylinders and producing results on the track for our fans and partners and our investors. We already know that the 2021 season will be one for the ages with a fierce battle up and down the grid and among the constructors. We have seen the results with the fans at the track and with engagement across all platforms. We look forward to the next races in Mexico and Brazil before concluding the season with three races in the Middle East, which will complete a record 22 race calendar in 2021. And we are already focused on setting a new record in 2022 with our 23 race calendar, end quote. So he's obviously humble, flexing, boasting a little bit there, and proud of uh, what they're doing. Anyways, time for a quick break, and when we come back on the other side, we're going to talk about everybody's favorite driver, and if you said... Bottas! Nope, you're George Russell! Nope, Uh, one more. Okay, because I was going to say three strikes and you're out. So anyways... Kevin Magnuson? Close. Okay. But still not quite. Uh, Anyways, uh, time for a quick break. Don't go away. We'll be back in just one moment. Passion drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, You'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 
Okay, and welcome back to the show. And well, no, I'm not going to give you full points. I'm going to give you half points because you said K Mag. Oh, I and hate you, points. You were you yeah, well, you know half well, points. I mean, bad answers get bad points. So there you go. Anyways, <laughs> bad races give half points. Too. There we go. Ah, yeah, that's spa. more. That's more. Uh, more uh, appropriate and fitting with the situation. Anyways, I'm not sure what to make of this one. I thought at first, you know, is there a Formula One equivalent of the Onion? or some so, sort of other satirical Formula <laughs> One website or publication. It I could just be argued it's our Twitter feed. Well, yeah, well, there, there you go. But the, this one is Nikita Mazepin says he's earning to, or he's hoping to earn an offer, excuse me, offer from a better team. I mean, I, I'm just going to tell you right now, this I'm filing under the, I just can't even, the, like section of my my my, my file here. I don't think I've got a lot to add. I posted this on our Twitter feed and the thread went crazy pretty quickly. And I didn't really notice until I came and opened up my phone at lunch when I was taking a quick break and I saw all the notifications about this one. But that was very much the response of a lot of the folks that were responding, which was, is this guy for real? He is without a shadow of a doubt. And and I'm not I'm not trying to be juvenile. I'm not trying to be um, super negative, but it's sure. pretty clear that he's the least capable driver on the grid. And we talk oftentimes about, hey, look, this is a pay driver. Maybe he wouldn't be there if all things were equal, but he's clearly the worst driver. He's clearly got some behavioral issues, which he's demonstrated throughout the junior ranks and even in the championship. His lack of self-awareness is incredibly obvious based on some of his egregious social media snafus in the past. And his dad fundamentally owns this team or at least has a financial financial stranglehold over the Haas team. So for him to suggest that he would love to have an opportunity with a better team, well, maybe you should talk to your dad and ensure that he continues to invest in the team that he already <laughs> has a stranglehold on and that you continue to develop as a driver yeah this one i i i thought this was a bit of a joke at first until i checked the uh checked the source and realized yeah he was literally asked this question and that was literally his answer yeah like i say i'm just gonna file this under the the i i just can't even category because i don't have anything further to add and uh, and i'm sure our friend our good friend josh cooper from the athletic is probably having a a good (laughs) laugh about this one all right. Well, moving along, what's what's up next here? Okay. So, okay. So the new manufacturer talks apparently are justifiably or are helping plan the 2026 engine rules. Now, this is nothing new because we've been talking about the, the possibility of Audi and Porsche or something under the VW banner coming into Formula One at some point in, in the future. And I mean, this has been an ongoing, almost, I don't want to say pet... Uh, discussion or thread that we've been pulling on for months and months and months. So it is really interesting too, because I mean, Porsche has apparently now the confirmed by going on the record saying that their interest in joining Formula One is legit, but they've got conditions attached to that. So, I mean, I guess that really isn't uh, too much of a surprise, but I mean, we, we've heard on the flip side that, you know, Total Wolf, among others, have been saying that they're willing to do away with like the MGUH and, you know, ma- make the engine format simpler and less difficult for just, just with the, you know, the end goal of being able to, to draw a new manufacturer or a new engine supplier like Audi or Porsche or whoever into the sport. I think it's becoming increasingly clear what's going to happen. I don't think we're going to see a incremental engine supplier in Formula One. So we currently have four engine suppliers. We have the Honda slash 
Red Bull hybrid concept, which is currently Honda, but then it's going to become a Red Bull project for a couple of years. We have Renault, we have Mercedes, we have Ferrari. I think, and you hinted at this before I think I'd heard anyone else mention this a couple of weeks ago, but I am now incredibly confident that what's going to happen is that Volkswagen is going to enter. They are going to partner with Red Bull. They are going to take over the Red Bull powertrain division. They are going to take ownership of that. They will brand the Red Bull works team, a Porsche team. So it will be Red Bull Porsche. And I think they will supply those power units to Williams under the Audi banner. So Hmm. I am incredibly confident that that's what's going to happen. So we're not going to have a fifth engine provider or engine supplier, but I think that Volkswagen is going to collaborate and partner with Red Bull. They're going to take responsibility for that powertrain division. They will feed uh, Porsche power units into Alpha Tauri and into Red Bull. And I'm very confident they will feed those same engine units or power units into uh, into Williams and they'll be branded, branded as Audi. Because I think what is incredibly clear here is Volkswagen wants to get involved with two of their banners. It's clear it's going to be Porsche and it's clear it's going to be Audi. But there's absolutely no scenario in the world in which they stand up two separate engine factories to mm-hmm. develop competing power units. But you have a team that is in the process of standing up their own power unit division. And the other thing to remember here too is we know that until 2025, that Red Bull team is going to be using a power unit that was fundamentally designed by Honda. At this point, it's just a maintaining. At the end of the season, the power unit formula is frozen. It's locked in place until at least the end of 2025, maybe 2026. Red Bull is not going to be developing on that. They're basically going to be maintaining that formula. Whatever they roll out in 2026 has to be fundamentally new from the ground up. All new IP, all new designs, not only because the new engine formula will be different, but rather because Honda contractually requires it of them. They want their DNA removed from their power unit. So there's this opening this perfect opportunity for Volkswagen to step in, take over a power unit division as it's shaping, as it's forming with all of the necessary infrastructure and the personnel. I just think it's too logical. And and when you think about it too, there were even comments this week from the Red Bull team, from Helmut Marko speaking to the fact that Red Bull is very much open to potential collaboration with Porsche or Audi, that they're, they're not closing that door. So I think things are becoming clearer and clearer. We certainly won't have an announcement this year of a potential partnership or collaboration with Red Bull, but I think as soon as I think as soon as Honda is officially done with the sport and they walk away at the end of this year, and I know that there's going to be some technical uh, technical uh, personnel still involved with the Red Bull operation next year, but I think at some point next year we'll have a pretty clear understanding of what Volkswagen's involvement is going to be and what teams they partner with for 2026. It is interesting because I mean some of the uh, the, the, the rumors out there is that a decision from uh, VW's board could come anytime uh, this month. Uh, they're going to have apparently some um, you know big high level meeting at some point, which uh, you know it sounds like that uh, they'll get the thumbs up uh, to proceed. So did you get the meeting invite to that one by the way no i didn't yeah, uh, sadly i'm checking not. my calendar and it's still not there yeah, it's still not there you know i, I keep refreshing and uh i'm just not getting any invites at all which is probably uh you know a little bit more concerning than just missing out <laughs> on uh, on that one 
Okay, so um, let's uh, we've uh, discussed that one uh, quite a bit. So yeah, uh, let's move along to the next. I just can't get over this whole Nikita Mazepin thing here. It's kind of uh, thrown me. I off know it's here, throwing but... you off. I should have. I should when I was putting together the agenda for this podcast, I probably should have buried that one at the end so it was less <laughs> disruptive. And it's probably good for everyone to listen listening at home to kind of understand what the uh, the arrangements are with this podcast. So Daily does all the actual work. All the work associated with this podcast, negotiating with sponsors, loading this content into cyberspace, editing the podcast, producing it, layering in the, the music. He does all of it. I have two very simple po- <laughs> responsibilities. Well, really three. One, show up and look like I'm not homeless, which I barely <laughs> managed to do since I've been wearing the same hoodie for every podcast since last November. Two, try to look after the social media account and not alienate people because you've given me a list of things I'm allowed to say. And then three, Dear God, Mark, just put together an agenda for every <laughs> podcast. And I usually get that to you 20 to 30 minutes before we're good to go. So you have no ability to prep because I don't give you the opportunity. But for anyone that's ever been listening, Daily does all the actual heavy lifting. And I just, I'm the talent. I just show up, sit behind the anchor desks, throw out a couple of opinions, and then go to bed while you sit down for three <laughs> hours to edit the show. Yeah, I, I guess I should have uh, said, you know, I, I, maybe I should just retract that statement uh, that I made. That, oh, you know, the, the the technical stuff? Yeah, that's fun. I like doing that. <laughs> you know, oh, I know it sucks, my friend. I, I did 50 episodes on the previous F1 podcast. It sucks. <laughs> you get used to it, though, but all good. Um, yeah, okay. So the next one is a kind of a build-on for what we were just uh, talking about. And this is um, Yoscapito, the team principal at, uh, at Williams, who says that the team must be ready for new partnerships and, um, you know, they must be open to it, but they don't want to become somebody else's uh, B team. And I think that that mentality has very much been, you know, quite, uh, I wouldn't say obvious, but I think there's been signs of it uh, recently, especially with this whole, um, this whole, I don't want to say saga, but this whole episode that they went through in signing Alex Albon instead of uh, taking uh, Nick DeFries, the Mercedes driver, and really kind of standing up to the pressure of uh, Mercedes that it was almost an expectation, almost a given that Nick would uh, end up in that second uh, Williams car alongside Nick Latifi for, for uh, 2022. I mean, it, it just seemed like it, it was the obvious thing. So when they came out and said, no, we're going our own way, we're going to bring Alex Albon in, who has no relationship with Williams, has no relationship with uh, Mercedes, who is in fact uh, a Red Bull driver and uh, the res- reserve driver. I mean, he's obviously been at AlphaTauri, uh, Taro Rosso, Red Bull, um, all the various different things. So that, I, I think, really set the tone. So I think this is a really, really uh, cool. Uh, and uh, Yoss had to say, quote, we think about the next 10 years. We are looking how does Formula One look like in the 30s. And then based on this, we break this down. What does this mean for the next five years? What does this mean for the next two years? And what does it mean until the end of 21? There are different ways, and when you have to see what kind of opportunities come up, and then you have to the, the flexibility to move in one direction or another. You can only do that if you have a proper plan. If you have a 10-year plan, you can have the flexibility short-term as long as you know where you finally want to end up. There are always different ways, and from time to time, you have to decide which kind of way you want to take to achieve the overall goal. 
there is not one right and the other, sorry, there's not one way right and the other is wrong, end quote. And again, I think this is a, a real indication of the, the the leadership and just the way that uh, this new management team and this new structure under the, uh, that was brought in by the Derilton Capital Group when they took over the team last year really is pushing this team in the right direction, is finally pushing them into the 21st century. And it's really apparent. I mean, like we said off the top of the show, they have made marginal gains in the Constructors' Championship uh, compared to last year. I mean, 23 points isn't a lot, but I mean, compared to Williams have been, that's probably more than the total of their past five or six seasons ever since 2016. I mean, the the drop-off over the edge of the cliff has been abrupt and and excuse me, sudden. And I think this is uh, really showing that the the work that they're doing behind the scenes at Williams is starting to slowly pay off like we've seen with McLaren, although I think McLaren's return and their renaissance has been somewhat quicker and more successful. It's remarkable to be... I find it remarkable that I'm so optimistic about a team that currently has, to your point, 23 points in the championship standing. I just... I feel really good about where this team is headed. And I think so much of what's changed has been, one, it's been the capital infusion. I think this team was suffocating financially under Frank and Claire Williams. And I'm still a little bit resentful of the fact that Claire was never given the opportunity to run a Formula One team that was fiscally well-balanced. I think she could have done some great things. I didn't like the fact that she was always a deputy team principal. I don't like the fact that Frank never relinquished full control to her. I thought that was disingenuous and unfair. Mm -hmm. But that said, I'm very excited for what the Drollton team is going to do with this team and has done already. My fear was that when that company became involved with this team that maybe their intentions weren't so pop pop or weren't necessarily so positive. My fear was, is their intention that they're going to strip this team down and sell it for nuts and bolts? Mm -hmm. What what is their intention? Because it isn't in their portfolio to buy and invest in and enrich professional sports teams or racing teams. That's just not what they did. But since they've come, they've often obviously relieved some of the financial strain and the financial pressures that were on the team. They've allowed them to invest in new personnel. And obviously the incorporation of the cost cap into the latest Concord agreement has helped. But Yost has been such a breath of fresh air. And I strongly believe that there were some really great tenured people at that factory. I just think the leadership structure, I think the way that the org was structured at that team wasn't Mm. necessarily well balanced. And I think Yost has been absolutely fantastic. And you touched on a great point, which is they really flexed their their independence muscle a few months ago, where I think I and so many other people just assumed, took for granted that Nick DeVries was going to be suiting up in a Williams race suit come next winter for winter testing, that that was a done deal. And they pushed back hard and said, no, we would prefer to have a driver from your rival, Mr. Mercedes, we would prefer to have a driver from the Red Bull Academy suit up because he has more experience in a Formula One car and we want to be able to score some championship points. So I also really enjoy the fact that they're flexing their independence a little bit and pushing back and very clearly saying we don't want to be anybody's B team. I also think this is a team that would relish terminating their agreement with Mercedes and not because Mercedes has been unfair to them as no. their engine supplier, but I think they've not they've not enjoyed watching the dominance of Mercedes. I think they're unhappy to see McLaren 
score so well in their first year with the Mercedes power unit. But I think Williams would be very excited to partner with an engine supplier who's committed to them in a way that Mercedes will never be because Mercedes also has their own works team that they need to be involved with. So again, it goes back to that Volkswagen piece. And you and I hinted at this a few weeks ago that that Audi partnership seems to be a really good fit for that Williams team, potentially. Oh, yeah, totally. And just to, to build on what you're just saying about uh, Jos Capito, I mean, it, it is amazing when you take a look at uh, just a little bit uh, further down the grid there or down the, 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 the pit lane and what a great hire Zach Brown was for McLaren. And I mean, uh, Capito, I find, is an equally great hire for Williams. I mean, the difference between the two is Zach has obviously been in the job for a couple of years. And as much as uh, I respect what he's done, he doesn't seem to be the kind of, at least from the outside. I mean, we don't have any uh, you know experience with day to day, uh, you know, things going on at Woking. But I mean, he to me, he seems like a, you know, a hands-off kind of guy because you look at all the quality, yeah. great hires that he's made. I mean, starting with Andreas Seidel as the, the team principal. And I kind of get the same vibe from Jos Capito as well, that he's going to be very much the same kind of uh, team principal. You know, do his uh, homework, bring in the right people, point them in the right positions and just let them get on with their jobs. And then just, uh, you know, and, and then things will take care of themselves. I know it, it's obviously a lot more complicated than that. But, uh, you know, it, it's like hiring the right people for the right jobs and just letting them do what they need to do each and every day. One last point to add before we move on to the next story. Yost, like Zach Brown, not not necessarily a, a rich history with Formula One, but definitely a rich history with motorsport. He won a hat trick of drivers and constructors championships in the World Rally Championship mm -hmm. for, pause, it was Volkswagen. VW, yeah. Yep. Volkswagen. Yeah, yeah, that's a great stat. So, I mean, there is that uh, that that link. And, of course, uh, where there's smoke, there's fire. Might not be a VW engine in the back of that Williams, but, hey, Audi, it makes more and more sense all the time. And, uh, you know, I, I feel I, I feel I feel good that we are the ones that first uh, brought up that discussion a couple of weeks breaking ago. Breaking news, baby. <laughs> Anyways, other breaking news. Time for a quick break. We'll come back in just a moment. And we are going to talk more about Nikita Mazepin. Psych, I'm just kidding. We're going to talk about something else, but I just had to say that. Anyways, don't go away. We'll be right back. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. All right, well, welcome back to the podcast. It is always up to speed with Formula One. Mark and Mark here, breaking down the latest uh, Formula One news. And I kind of wanted to jump ahead on this one uh, yeah, a do little it. bit. And... Um, well, we'll come back to this in a minute, but I wanted to talk a little bit now about uh, Andretti Motorsport and the whole fact that this uh, deal with Sauber didn't uh, go through. I mean, Michael Andretti saying earlier today on Thursday that it wasn't all down to money. I mean, the price tag, you know, if you look at some of it was maybe $250 million in other circles, it was up to uh, and perhaps even more than 600 million euros. 
But apparently what it came down to was the fact that uh, despite maybe taking an 80% stake in ownership, that the big sticking point was that Sauber was just not ready to hand over full control of the team. And I could see that, uh, you know, if you're Michael Andretti or Mario Andretti, that you're forking over all this cash, you're going to be bringing all these sponsors and everything like this. And, you know, the existing owner is going to take all this money, but he's not going to relinquish uh, ownership uh, despite being a minority 20% uh, stakeholder, which I think is kind of like narrow minded. You know, I think it's very short sighted because you think that where all these teams are, it just goes back to what we were talking about off the top of the show, where these teams are, are starting to go in terms of valuations and how much these tim- teams are going to uh, grow and uh, become worth over the, the, the next uh, several years or a decade or whatever it might be. It just seems uh, it, you know, I know there's a lot of egos in Formula One. But uh, to me, I, I think that if it just came down to the fact that Peter Sauber just didn't want to hand over control of his team, I mean, I get it, but still, that uh, that seems to be quite a mind blower to me. What do, what do you think? Yeah, one of the things I'd read, and I'm super glad you brought up this topic, is as the negotiations got more and more serious and they advanced farther and further and the letter of intent came out and they started discussing how the financial transaction would look, it sounds as though the existing owner became more and more excited about the fact that he wasn't selling the team, but that he owned a Formula One team at all. And I don't know if you can relate, but it's kind of like that situation where you've got that thing and it's been collecting dust for years and your partner keeps telling you, you've got to get it out of here. You got to sell it. You got to sell it. So you're like, okay, you put it on Craigslist, you go and pull it out and you start dusting it off. And you're like, this is actually pretty cool. Like, why don't <laughs> I use this? Why has it been in my closet for three years? I think that may be a little bit of what happened here, which is the owner became more and more apprehensive as the conversations advanced because I think he may have realized he had a jewel tucked away in his closet this entire time that he'd been under-investing in. And I think maybe he got a little bit excited about it. And then all of a sudden, the offer became less and less compelling as the days went on and on and on. And maybe it was less that he was willing to sell, but he wanted to retain some degree of control. And I think ultimately, it just got to a point in the negotiations where he realized he didn't want to sell it at all, at least that's what's been reported, especially in the German press. But I think there's probably some shred of truth to that as that as the negotiations progressed, he began to better and better appreciate that he had this asset that's only going to accelerate in value over the coming years. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's something that he wants to better invest in now and better enjoy. Maybe it was just a, a tactic on their behalf that, uh, you know, if you really want to like take the, you know, take this team off of my hands, you're really going to have to. Exactly. So who knows? Exactly. I mean, but I thought that it was interesting nonetheless uh, that, uh, that, that, he, that it supposedly came down to the fact that he didn't want to fully relinquish or relinquish, pardon me. Uh, control of uh, the, the 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 team. So the next one is that uh, Total Wolf has uh, a warning for any future manufacturer coming into to, to Formula One. And of course, we were just talking about the possibility of Audi and uh, Porsche coming in and partnering with Williams and Red Bull reportedly. Anyways, uh, Toto said that uh, basically that even with um, rules and regulations that should be friendly to any potential OEMs that want to come into the sport, they should be prepared to, to put the work in because they're not going to be, or they, they shouldn't be expecting instant success, which would be a little bit of uh, naivety on their behalf. Anyways, uh, Toto had to say, quote, it's great we have strong OEMs that are showing uh, an interest in coming into our sport. 
Obviously, none of these major car companies want to come in and face a situation where they're highly uncompetitive. It's a fine balance we need to get right in order to attract newcomers as power unit manufacturers. We need to have the systems in place to that mitigate these very big risks. On the other side, Formula One is the Champions League. Nobody can expect to enter the Champions League for the first time and go straight to the final and go home with the biggest trophy. Everybody had to fight for their way up the order to eventually win races and championships. We've been there for a long time, invested a lot of money, sweat, blood, and terrible resorts in order to get us where we are. End quote. So, <coughs> excuse me, I think that is a, a very, uh, you know, sensible and logical quote from, from Toto because, I mean, as much as we sit back here and talk about them and, and how much all this phenomenal run of success and domination that Mercedes has joined or enjoyed since uh, 2014. It didn't start out that way. Sure, they they took over an existing team. They bought out Ross Braun's Braun GP in 2010, whatever it was, rebranded it as a Mercedes works team, but they weren't anything to really get excited about for those first couple of years. They But they really had their eye on the the the, the transition in 2014 to the V6 turbo hybrid era that uh, that came into effect that year. They worked around that, and the rest is uh, basically history. I mean, but what, like Toto says, it didn't come easy. It came at a cost, and it wasn't uh, it wasn't that something that happened overnight. I think this is a very fair caution to any OEM or manufacturer that wishes to get involved with Formula One. And what I don't think he's trying to do is scare people away, but I think he's just trying to level set expectations that sure. we've seen OEMs and manufacturers enter Formula One in the past and disappear. We saw. Toyota had an extremely high profile bid to join Formula One and they joined with a big splash. They kind of paddled about for a couple of years endlessly without any meaningful success and they exited the sport right around the time of the global financial crisis. Honda had a works team. In fact, Honda had two teams heading into 2009 and they left the sport at the end of 2008, which opened up the opportunity for Ross Braun to take over a team, although that's certainly not what he was looking for, only to come back and then leave again. Mm -hmm. And of course, we've had other teams. BMW partnered with Williams at one point. BMW took over Sauber and then sold it back to Sauber. We saw Subaru try to get involved with a flat box or a flat box or 12 uh, V12 back in the 1980s. Like We've seen manufacturers come in thinking that this is something that we can do only to realize that, wow, this is incredibly difficult, despite <laughs> the fact that our company is worth billions of dollars and we sell millions of road cars, developing a competitive Formula One car is actually really challenging. And I think your point of comparison with, with Mercedes is perfectly apt that, hey, they stepped in in 20. 11, 2010, I guess would have been their first year as a manufacturer. Um, they worked great in 2010, 11, 12, eh, they started showing some competitiveness. 13, they scored a couple of Grand Prix wins, but it really wasn't until they reset the regulations in 2014 with the turbo hybrids that they became successful. So I think his point is, hey, we want you to come, but you need to understand there could be a five, seven, 10-year runway before you can be competitive. And if you yep. think you can come in and be a competitive in one or two years, you need to recalibrate your expectations and you need to make sure that your board, your board of directors back in Berlin or Tokyo or Detroit, wherever it is, you need to make sure that they understand that the runway here is long and that we may not be successful quickly. Now, 
the cost cap, all of these other pieces should make it easier because you're not going to come in now and compete with a Mercedes and a Ferrari have, who have unlimited budgets. All of the teams are working within the confines of a much more conservative economic structure. Mm-hmm. But that said, if you get your philosophy wrong, that's not necessarily something you can unwind in a month or two months. It might take a year of engineering to undo a simple mistake. So I think his point here is perfectly fair. Yeah, totally. I mean, you make a great point as well. I mean, what with the cost cap uh, coming in? I mean, we're sliding down to eventually to what, $130 million per year, whatever it is. And I mean, you look back in the day, I mean, Ferrari and uh, and Mercedes and teams like that were spending what, you know, half half a billion dollars a year in, in R&D and, and, and all... Like on everything, I mean, it's just a, an astronomical amount of money, and I mean that's that's a really tough sell to to say the board of Subaru or Honda or Renault or whoever saying, yeah, we want to go into Formula One, but the big boys that are winning right now, they're spending you know half a billion dollars per year, and we think that it's going to be you know six, seven, maybe even eight years before we're <laughs> potentially competitive enough to to win races and contend for championships. That's a really really tough sell. But I mean, you know, I, I mean, not that 130 million dollars or 145, wherever we are right now, is uh, is anything to to kind of laugh at. I mean, it's still a big sum of money. But at least you know, in the short term, that if we're at 145 today, going into 140 next year, and then sliding down to we reach this floor or this um, the, this ceiling of this cost cap, whatever you want to look uh, look at it. And say that's going to be 130 million dollars. I mean, that's that's different because then you can say, yeah, you know, it's going to be 130 million dollars that we're going to have to fork out every year. But so is everybody else. The, the 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 big teams aren't spending whatever they want to anymore. We all have to do it. But sure, it's going to be maybe five or six years before we're competitive. But at least we know up front what those costs are going to be. So yeah, maybe we're looking at three quarters of billion dollars, but that's spread out over say seven years, whatever it is, rather than all at once, um, you know, or on a recurring basis, which ends up being billions rather than hundreds of millions. I mean, all of which is giving me a bit of a headache and giving me the desire to go lie down and have a quick nap. So anyways. All right. So moving on to the next one. So uh, Zach Brown, remember him? We were talking about him just now. CEO of uh, McLaren said that he believes that the results that his team have been getting this year prove that they've been equal or getting equal treatment from from, uh, Mercedes. Mercedes, obviously, uh, a works team and uh, an engine manufacturer. Um, a McLaren building their own cars, but a customer team of uh, Mercedes. And there's always, and this is nothing new. There's always been this sort of perception. I don't want to say an implication, but a perception that any team that gets a customer engine from one of the big manufacturers, be it Mercedes or Ferrari or Honda or whoever, there's always been this perception that if you have a customer engine, it's not as good as the one that goes into the back of the works car. But I think it's very interesting that uh, that Zach should uh, come out uh, and say this. And uh, he had to say, quote, Mercedes has been a great partner. They've certainly met and exceeded our expectations. They've helped us to, to get back to winning races and scoring podiums. Our reliability has been very good. I know they've had their challenges. I think there are elements that go into reliability that aren't necessarily exclusively with the power unit. It's car design, it's cooling, it's the packaging. So all I can do is speak for McLaren's experience, which is that we're having a great run with Mercedes. They've uh, an unbelievable track record. Of course, we're always concerned when 
when anything comes to reliability, that's not exclusive of the power unit. But we're very happy with Mercedes and their track record speaks for itself. So we're not worried that they won't get on top of the issue. We haven't experienced a lot of the issues that they've experienced, end quote. And I think that the, the, the key takeaway from that is that that Mercedes has obviously had some issues with their own engines that hasn't necessarily been reflected or mirrored in some of the issues that uh, that the McLaren have had. The, the, the two experiences that these two individual teams with identical engines have been completely different this year. So I think there's a lot of... Um, you know, credence to what uh, what, what Zach is uh, saying. And uh, well, I mean, I, I guess that really does, I wouldn't say it blow it out of the water, but I think he makes a very good point that that perception that works engines and customer engines maybe are a lot closer than sometimes we think they, they, they are. Definitely. One of the questions that I get quite often, and this is a perfect segue, and I promise I'll make this quick. I know you're grimacing because here comes another <laughs> Hamilton story time. But one of the questions I quite often get is really about these relationships between engine suppliers and the teams that buy their engines. And the question often is, how does that work financially? Do they send them a check for an engine and send them a check for another engine? It doesn't work quite like that. You got to think about it more. I'm I'm super simplifying here, but think about it more as a services contract that, hey, we are going to pay you say 15 or $20 million a year, and you are going to supply us with a constant stream of power units and the associated power unit components would usually be the electrification component. So um, ultimately, if I'm Williams, I sign an agreement with you and you start sending power units on pallets from Bricksworth to Grove. And then you also, Mr. Mercedes, you also supply us with full-time engineers from your payroll that will wear our uniforms to help provide us with installation instruction and guidance and engineering expertise. Now, if one of the engines that Mercedes fails, well, that's on Mercedes and they need to provide a replacement. Now, if say one of your drivers crashes the car and that power unit's a write-off, well, the customer team is going to pay for that power unit. But think about it more as a services contract than a team buying these engines ad hoc as Mm -hmm. necessary. Hey, I need a bespoke engine. I need a bespoke engine. It's a services contract. And for Mercedes, in the case of Williams or the case of McLaren, is contractually obligated to make sure that those teams have a constant supply of power units. Now, the teams are often responsible for developing all of the parts around them. So for instance, a radiator, Mercedes isn't supplying a radiator to McLaren or to Williams. That's an aero device that those teams need to develop. The gearbox, well, you know what? You can buy a gearbox from Mercedes, but you could also develop your own. And notoriously, Williams, despite being provided with Mercedes power units, has historically, until at least the last two years, always been insistent on developing their own gearboxes, which has proved complicated because a lot of the issues that they've been having with their Mercedes or Mercedes supplied power units were not the Mercedes power unit itself, but issues related to their internally manufactured Hmm. gearbox. So when you think about these relationships between engine suppliers and customer teams, think about them more as a services contract that, hey, for 15 or $20 million a year, I know that a truck is going to back up at our loading bay with power units and the electrification components that we can stick into our car. And that furthermore, you are going to staff us with at least two full-time engineers to help make carry those power units to our cars and the components within those cars. Yeah, it's interesting too because it's not always as cut and dry as that. Because I mean, you look at the relationship that um, that uh, Red Bull had with uh, with Renault. 
I mean, uh, right up until the, uh, you know, they, they split with them and went with Honda a couple of years ago. That it was very much, okay, well, they're going to supply us with engines, but, you know, we have to find a way to put it to, into the back of the car and kind of work around it. Whereas when they went, when they switched to Honda, there was very much a partnership uh, between them. So, like, there was, it was a lot easy to marry that Honda engine with that Red Bull chassis because they were working so close together. I mean, obviously, that, so that relationship between Renault and, uh, and, and Red Bull soured over the years. I mean, certainly wasn't helped by the fact that, uh, that Christian Horner was, uh, you know, saying very disparaging and negative things about them many, many times over the years uh, in many different, uh, you know, forms of media that he, he could possibly do so. So, I mean, that relationship was uh, strained and it very much got to the point. It's like, okay, well, we'll provide you with engines, but whatever you do with them, that's up to you and we don't really care. Just give us our check and, you know, we'll give you an engine. Whereas, uh, you know, that, that's, that, that relationship obviously went as far as it could. And Honda were, you know, so eager to come back into the sport and do something. Obviously, it was a very, very difficult um, start when they came back to with McLaren in 2015. And it really was a, a good situation, both for them and both for Red Bull. And, you know, why not attack it with some gusto and go at it, uh, you know, completely on the same page, get all your people working together. So not only are you developing a, a good car or a good engine, but these two are actually going to be compatible and uh, you're going to be able to maximize both uh, you know, the, the, the car and the chassis and the power that you're, you're putting into it. All right, well, time for another quick break. When we come back, we will talk more about... No, I'm not going to make that joke again. There, there's got to be a limit, right? And uh, I won't make any more armadillo references because at this point, that's just cruel. So. <laughs> <laughs> cruel to the armadillos or to me? I just want to be clear. E yeah, maybe more to you than to the armadillos. You know, we pro probably we should leave them out of it at, the, at this point as well. Anyways, time for a quick break. When we come back, um, we'll talk about something. I'll figure it out uh, during the break. So don't go away. We'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right. Well, welcome back. And another blast from the past. I mean, we're just referencing 2015 and Honda's return to Formula One with McLaren. And I'm going to now leapfrog a year into the future, which is now also the past because it's 2016. And uh, I don't know how I even made that sound remotely coherent, but hey... I guess I'm not as uh, tired and sleepy as I thought. Anyways, I'm going to talk now about uh, 2016 world champion Nico Rosberg, who has admitted recently that he knew exactly the moment that he was going to retire from Formula One. I mean, it was a real shock. I remember you know, five years ago um, when he announced like a week after the championship, after he won that final race in Abu Dhabi to claim the world championship, that he was hanging up his gloves, he's hanging up his helmet, and that's it, boys. You know, I'm done. Uh, you know, Formula One's not for me anymore. I'm not prepared to to, to make this sacrifice and do it. I'm uh, I'm going to go home and uh, get on with my life. So, anyways, he said that uh, this massive a uh, decision was what uh, was made actually quite quickly after the end of the 2016. And how quickly do you ask? It was 
two meters after he crossed the <laughs> the finish line at Yas back in 2016, which would be like how many, what, nanoseconds, hundreds of a second, tenth? No, it wouldn't be a tenth, but it uh, it was a very, very... Uh, you know, short amount of time, and 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 that is surprising because that that obviously means that he didn't spend that next week in between winning the championship, and and sitting around mulling it over, agonizing over it, talking about it with his wife, talking about it with his dad, who's also a Formula One world champion, talking with friends, advisors, whoever. He'd actually must have been considering this for some time before, you know, actually you know deciding literally as he crossed the finish line that you know what I, that's it I'm done. This is I, I think. This this is a very, very interesting admission from Nico. Incidentally, the seats that I had at that race were maybe 20 meters away from that point where he made that decision. My wife and I were sitting on the front row, wow. on the front grid, maybe 30 or 40 feet away from the track. Cool. But, and I've shared this before, we made the mistake of going and lining up to get onto the track after the race was over so we could be on the track during the podium celebration. So we actually missed the point where he crossed the finish line. We missed him doing donuts. We missed the fireworks. We missed the celebration on track. And it's a mistake we will not make this year if the championship <laughs> goes down to the final race in Yas. We will be there glued to our seats. But I thought this was a fascinating story. And I think what's even more fascinating about this is as determined, as definitive as his decision was, and this is jumping ahead a couple of stories because I should have linked these two together, Rosberg actually thought back at the end of last year, towards the end of the campaign, he thought potentially about being Lewis Hamilton's stand-in hmm. at Sahir when Lewis Hamilton had tested positive for COVID. So That's as definitive and as determined as he was to put his Formula One career behind him, to celebrate his championship, relish the fact that he finished his career as a champion to spend the rest of his life safely tucked alongside his wife and child, he was open to the idea of returning for one race stint, which I think is fan well, I wasn't gonna say fantastic, I think is is fascinating. And I think the thing that made his storybook ending, and I don't know if it was so much a storybook ending at the time, because he wasn't universally globally liked, even within Germany, I I think, but mm -hmm. I think at least a lot of people gave him credit that, hey, oftentimes we want our sports heroes to go out on top. We don't like to see the Washington Wizards days of Michael Jordan. Sure. We would prefer to have seen him go out as a championship with the Chicago Bulls in 1998, but I think a lot of people respected him for leaving. Now, boy, what... The history of Formula One, if he had stayed around and continued to take points off of Lewis and continued to battle Lewis for podiums year after year in 2017, 18, 19, the record books could be completely different at this point. Maybe he doesn't win any more titles, but maybe he takes enough points off of Lewis and causes enough friction that maybe Seb can sneak in and take a title. Who knows? Who knows, right? Yeah. But uh, Nico Rosberg is quoted as saying that he did, in fact, think about potentially sitting in for Lewis Hamilton at Sakhir at the end of 2020. You know, that uh, that is amazing. But the only question I have is, like, w would he have been fit enough to? I mean, he, like with some of these other guys, like Nico, uh, sorry, uh, Nico Hulkenberg, I mean, you know, I, I think it was difficult enough for him. But I mean, Rosberg had been out of Formula One for several years at that point. And I mean... 
And he's, a- he's quoted specifically at that saying, I would definitely have considered picking up the phone, he told Jensen Button on Jensen's YouTube channel, but I physically would not have been able to. No way. I would not manage more than two laps with that car. My arms would solidify rock <laughs> solid. My fingers, I wouldn't be able to hold the steering wheel at any more than two laps. There you go. Not to speak of the neck falling between my legs when I'm braking because I wouldn't be able to hold my head up. You know, the G-forces on those things, the challenge and the development you need on all your specific muscles, your arms, your legs, it's all very on the edge. So physically, there was never any chance, but I was thinking about it. So I find that fascinating that almost Same. five years after his retirement, after winning a championship, that he was potentially open to a one-race stint in Lewis's car, of all things. Yeah, I wonder how Lewis would have felt uh, felt about that. Or, or <laughs> yeah, if maybe. Lewis wasn't happy having Russell in his car. <laughs> Or I wonder if that uh, relationship is uh, maybe mellowed a little bit, but uh, I don't really recall uh, hearing any stories that uh, that these two have met up to to try and you know bury the hatchet and let bygones be bygones. But yeah, you know it's funny. I mean, Nico isn't really a stranger to Formula One. I mean, he's shown up on the on, on the broadcast a number of time over the years. I mean, he's obviously taken good you know, care of himself. He still looks like he's in pretty good shape. But I mean, just because he's in good shape to maybe ride a bicycle or play tennis or just be in good physical, uh, you know conditioning at any rate doesn't mean that he would be in you know the 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 type of physical conditioning required to drive a formula one car and endure all those g-forces subjected to a modern formula one driver but that's a a cool story uh nonetheless all right one more uh quick uh, story before we get into uh we'll we'll go for one more quick break and then we'll get into our preview for the, the the race this weekend But this is just a a nice little bridge in between that story. And apparently, almost 300,000 people applied in their pre-sale window to get tickets for the Miami Grand Prix next next year. I mean, we talked about it last week. Some of the the, the huge, huge prices for some of these tickets as high as $1,200 for a three-day pass in some of these uh, different areas. And even in some of the family areas, still looking at several hundred dollars for a three-day pass hasn't deterred people. I mean, uh, we, we'd been talking about, we were looking at it. And of course, when the, when the prices came, I was like, yeah, it's a little bit too rich for us to go maybe next year. But still, I mean, that is, um, I think, very telling because it shows that uh, despite the high ticket point, price point, that there's still lots of interest and in people willing to fork over that cash to go to Miami next year. Definitely. And like you and I spoke about before, and we've talked to on the Spaces chat, I feel like that Miami experience is going to be very different than than Austin, than the U.S. Grand Prix. And I think one of the things that makes Formula One so special is that, and then you see a little bit of this in professional sports, especially in baseball, where every stadium is so unique and the dimensions are different sure. and there's a different atmosphere. But every single Formula One Grand Prix has a completely different personality. Some of them are lavish and rich and comfortable. Some of them are much more country festival, um, music festival, carnival atmosphere. And I think I think Coda kind of fits into that. It's big, it's sprawling, it's fun, it's entertaining, there's music, there's dust, there's heat, there's sweat. It's not necessarily a luxurious experience, but it's fun. It's a carnival, it's a festival. I think Miami's taking completely the opposite approach. There's no general admission, at least not at this point. All of the tickets are going to be in lavish grandstands and so much of the ticket allocation is going to be for paddock passes and for hospitality. Mm -hmm. It is definitely going to cater to, not that there isn't going to be any overlap, but it's definitely catering to a different demographic. 
potentially than Coda did. And I think like you and I have mentioned a couple of times as we've talked on the on the Spaces chats, and Meg was a big advocate of this um, in, in all fairness, but for a lot of fans that I think were hoping to go to Miami and realize that maybe they've been outpriced and that ultimately there just aren't tickets available. And then they look at Montreal and realize, well, Montreal is really sold out for 2022 because they're carrying over the tickets from 2021 because the event didn't happen. Mm -hmm. There's some value in starting to look at Europe. And if you haven't considered it before, if you've never been to Europe, look, look at Spa, look at Silverstone, look at Monza. There are some phenomenal world-class racetracks over there. It's an atmosphere and experience like you've never had before, even if you've been to Coda, but every track has a different personality. And I feel, I feel like the Miami group, Stephen Ross, the Miami Dolphins, I think they're looking to build an experience closer to Yas or Monaco mm -hmm. than to Silverstone Spa or Coda. Yeah, I mean, my, my takeaway on what the vibe is going to be like in Miami compared to, say, Coda is Coda is very much barbecue and beer, whereas Miami is going to be like uh, caviar and champagne kind of thing, right? So, I mean, I'm kind of more of a barbecue kind of, uh, you know, T-shirt and flip-flop uh, kind of guy. So, I think I probably fit in a little bit better at uh, at Coda. But, you know, if, if I can clean my act up, I wouldn't say no to going to Miami either. Anyway, so let's take a quick break here. We come back. We'll start closing down the show. But before we do that, i got plenty to talk about, including a preview of the race this weekend. So, don't go away. We will be right back. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. And yes, it is that time. We do have a race this weekend and it's going to be an interesting one. It's uh, Mexico, of course, has been a track that uh, has been off the calendar for a good number of years and got back onto the calendar just a couple of years ago. Obviously, we didn't have a Mexican Grand Prix in 2020 because of the pandemic. Uh, but before that, um, out of the previous three races, two were won by uh, Max Verstappen and Red Bull. The other one was won by uh, Lewis Hamilton and Mercedes. But there's a bit of an asterisk there because Max had a puncture after he put his um, tire on Valtteri Bottas's uh, wing, his end plate, and ended up right at the back of the, uh, the, 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 the running order early in the race, but still recovered to, what, sixth or seventh or something like that. So, I mean, this is a track where... Red Bull has run very well over the past uh, number of years. It's um, obviously the altitude in Mexico City is going to be a factor. It's higher up. So the the, the one thing that is going to be in, uh, probably beneficial to uh, Red Bull is the fact that this they have a much more efficient and a better, stronger uh, turbocharger, which is um, you know really um, you know is what uh, where the effect is felt in this rarefied atmosphere, and they just have run better there over the past uh, couple of years. So I know that the gap between uh, Red Bull and Mercedes has it's grown a little bit. I mean, it's been close, and it's kind of it's fluctuated over the, the 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 course of the year, but I would think that going into this one, uh, you know, I'm still going with Red Bull being the favorites. The other thing is too, Lewis still reportedly is going to take this. Um, you know, he's got to change his internal combustion unit. And depending whether or not he changed that ice or not, then he's going to have a five cred uh, place penalty. And we all know that this is going to be confirmed as soon as we finish recording this podcast, because that's what happens uh, each and every week. So that is a, definitely a, a, a possibility, but I don't know. I'm I'm going with Red Bull on this one. I think that uh, that that Max has been strong recently. I think that Sergio has been strong uh, recently. 
but there, there, there's so much to, 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 to play for at the moment. I mean, the, the championship is literally there. We can literally see the finish line. We're, we're a couple of corners from the end now, and time is running out. Every point is uh, crucial, and uh, neither of these guys in Lewis Hamilton or Max Verstappen is going to want to give away anything, so it's going to be fascinating to watch. And there's some twists to this one as well, of course. I a twist says in 21 corners on this 4.3 kilometer track in the southeast corner of Mexico City. There you like go. how well I kind done. of squeezed that, that in you. It's my, my extensive decades long experience <laughs> on public radio. But no, this is a track that I, I thoroughly enjoy. We went back to Mexico City in 2015 after, geez, probably a 22, 23 year gap. In the previous incarnation of the track from 86 to 92, we saw some absolute legends win here. Nigel Mansell's won here. Alain Prost has won here. Uh, Ricardo Patrici's one here, Ayrton Senna, uh, Gerhard Berger. And then in 2015, we returned in the second year of the turbo hybrid era. Rosberg won. Lewis has won here twice. And Max Verstappen has won here twice. And like you said, he's had some misfortune as well. For me, one of the biggest takeaways from this track is Obviously, it's at extremely high altitude. I don't mm-hmm. think there's another track on the calendar that's run at these type of altitudes. And I think if you look at the technical nature and the composition of the Mercedes car, I don't think it's that their power unit is necessarily ill-equipped for the high altitude, but I think they have historically put emphasis on their aero design at the expense of cooling. And I think at a high altitude like Mexico City, it could spell complications for their turbocharger and for their engine because cool air is so, so, so critically mm-hmm. important to that turbocharger formula. So my sense is if if I had to put a prediction out there that if if Max Verstappen qualifies well, I don't necessarily see any reason why he can't win this race. And if he starts start and pull, I think it's going to be incredibly difficult for Lewis to find an edge in this race. Now, that said, if it finishes 1-2, the championship is still very much to fight for. I mean, there'll be a 20-point gap, but there'll still be four races left and anything can happen. But there's absolutely no circumstance where Lewis can f- afford to finish anything less than a single place behind Max. And again, the championship won't be decided in Brazil. It's not going to be decided in Jeddah. It's probably still going to come down to the final couple of races. But Mercedes badly needs this victory. They need to close up that gap. They need to get within six points of of Max Verstappen in the Drivers' Championship. And they certainly can't afford to hemorrhage any more points in the Constructors' Championship. But like you said, everything's still to play for. And even if you put aside the Mercedes, the Red Bull battle, and the Max Lewis battle, we've also got this really intriguing battle that we talked about in the Spaces chat tonight between Ferrari and between McLaren. And that Mm. battle, to me at this stage, is still equally as entertaining, not least of which because I so boastfully predicted that Ferrari was going to have a real surge in the second half of the season because of their power unit upgrades, and they were probably going to finish third. And third place versus fourth could potentially be worth $20 million, maybe $25 million of prize money. And for McLaren, a team that has been financially compromised the last few years and has relied heavily on the sovereign wealth funds of some of the states in the Gulf to continue to operate as they have, that's really important. And for Ferrari, a team that had really tempered expectations coming into the season, I think they would love to have the bragging rights of finishing third going into the new era formula. But I'm super excited for this race. I love the layout. I absolutely adore the stadium section. It's tight. Mistakes can cost you in a big way. 
I think in 2019 and qualifying in Q3, we saw Valtteri make a mistake near the finish line, which ultimately almost rode off that car and put him at a significant disadvantage going into the Grand Prix because his mechanics had to work overnight to put that car back together again. But it's a track that punishes mistakes. It's at high altitude. It's going to be very, very hot. I think this is a track and I think the conditions are going to play into Red Bull's hands. Yeah, it certainly looks that way. I mean, uh, if you just look at some of the stats here and some, well, let's first of all look at the tires. Uh, Pirelli are bringing their mid-range uh, of their, their their tire lineup, the C2 hard, C3 mediums, and C4 softs. And you already snuck in some uh, some stats about the track. It is uh, indeed 4.3 kilometers long or 2.67 miles, a 303.35 kilometer race distance or 189.74 miles, 71 laps. The last time we were here in 2019, it was Charles Leclerc on pole for Ferrari and Charles sitting a time of 115.024. Uh, the podium back in 2019 was uh, Hamilton, Vettel, and Bottas. The fastest lap of the race was uh, set by Mr. Leclerc. His fastest lap uh, then in 2019 was a 119.232. Now, I, 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 one of the things I think that, that was uh, really interesting that uh, you brought up there was the fact that you know Max is leading the championship now. It's what, 12, 13 points or something like that. But it was just fascinating the way that that race shook out in uh, in the USA just a couple of weeks ago was that uh, we were really expecting that uh, the, the way that uh, Max's tires were going off and Lewis, uh, you know, staying out longer was really putting him in that prime position to win that race, which if he did would have put him back into the lead of the championship by about six or seven points, if I do my math uh, correctly. Didn't turn out that way. Both of those guys drove the rubber off of their tires, literally. I mean, in Max's case, uh, there, there was nothing left on the carcass of that tire, but he still managed to hang on long enough to, to stay in front of Lewis and kind of f- turned the table and flipped it upside down on Lewis. Instead of being six points uh, behind his Mercedes uh, rival, he ends up 12 or 13 points to the better ahead of Lewis than, than the way that it uh, turned out. I mean, that's a very small gap, obviously. So that that's why I was thinking that if uh, Lewis, and he's saying that he doesn't have to uh, change that ice in the back of his car. And the, the, the thing is, Mercedes will not do that unless they absolutely have to, because although I think that, say, Lewis qualifies on pole, takes that five-grid uh, grid place penalty, I have no doubt that uh, that that Lewis Hamilton can make up five races or five spots over the course of a race. However, it might be a little bit more difficult at a track where Mercedes has been at a bit of a disadvantage over the past uh, couple of years, like it is at uh, Mexico City. So it may not be as, uh, as clear-cut as that. However... You know, if he if he's forced to, to do it and he has to replace that ice, you know, why not now rather than than later on when you still have the luxury of time? Because you you don't know what Max is going to be facing in those last four races. You don't know what's going to happen during the course of a race or if he qualifies bad or if the re- weather turns bad. So it's going to be a, a, a calculated risk on the behalf of uh, Mercedes and Lewis Hamilton whether or not they decide to 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 do that. Yeah, I. I think I agree with a lot of what you're saying, and I'm just trying to shape up in my head what the rest of the calendar looks like. So we go into Austin, we get a two-week break, and I think that race was 
maybe a surprise for Red Bull. I think maybe they were resigned to the fact that, especially with the way that Lewis got that great start in the first corner, that maybe they got away with one there and they ended up putting six points between the drivers instead of losing potentially six points and the, the championship pretty much being even. We go into Mexico City. This is going to be followed up quickly by Brazil. Yeah. Then we fly into the Middle East and we've got Qatar, which is going to be unknown quantities, right? Because none of these guys have driven a Formula One car on that track in a meaningful way. It's a very tight track. It's very technical. It was designed for motorcycles. So I think that's a bit of an unknown quantity. We go into Jeddah. Jeddah is a long, extremely fast track, but it's going to have brand new tire that has absolutely no rubber (laughs) meshed into it. So that aggregate could potentially be ready to tear these tires apart. And then the other challenge too is Jeddah's on the water on the Red Sea, it's going to be incredibly hot. It's going to be incredibly humid. It's going to be very dusty because the track will be just reaching completion. And then when we complete there, a week later, we're off to Abu Dhabi. And mm. Abu Dhabi is going to have a unique twist this year because they've reprofiled two corners and yeah. they've introduced a banked corner. So if you look at the balance of the championship, there's some unpredictability. And Brazil, well, it's a track we know, but the weather could be incremental. We never know. Yep. We've seen rain there many, many times. I just... I think this is a very important race weekend for Mercedes, but even if it doesn't go to plan and maybe maybe Max wins and Lewis has finished third, I just think there's an awful lot of championship left because there's a ton of unpredictability. Max doesn't know LaSalle. Max doesn't know Jeddah. Max doesn't know the current Yas configuration, but at the same time, neither does Lewis. So mm-hmm. I think my point is that we've stressed this forever. With five Grand Prix left, with four Grand Prix left, this championship is very, 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 very tight. And unless Lewis DNFs or unless Max DNFs, I think this championship is still completely wide open. But if I'm Mercedes as well, and I think we talked about this two Grand Prix ago, three Grand Prix ago, maybe make that ice change now. Do it now. To me, it just makes more sense to do it now when there's still so much championship left. Yeah, you know, and the and the, the the worst case scenario for for Lewis obviously is if he DNFs and Max wins because then obviously he opens up a very very big lead in the championship. But still, you know, if um you know Max ends up winning and Lewis is uh, you know ends up finishing say fifth or sixth or something like that, now all of a sudden Max has the benefit of having basically a race win in his back pocket if he gets up to that sort of twenty twenty five point gap, then that becomes significant because it really hasn't been that uh, that that. Big. I mean, it's been fairly close between these guys basically all, all season long. But, you know, as much as I'm looking forward to watching this one, I'm looking forward to watching some of the other battles down the grid. I mean, this Ferrari McLaren one, I think, is really, really juicy. I mean, there's only just a couple of points separating the two teams in the championship right now. I think that Carlos Sainz and Charles Leclerc have had pretty decent, if maybe somewhat quiet campaigns uh, this year. I mean, uh, Ricardo obviously winning at Monza. We all know about Lando. I mean, they like everybody else, they, they've had their good weekends and bad weekends. But the fact that uh, Ferrari's delivered in a, in a way that I don't think anybody expected uh, this year has been a, a real surprise. And it'll be interesting, too, to see how this one really shakes out at the end of the year. I mean, I, I think when it comes down to it, uh, I mean, both of these teams are going to be motivated to try and get that third place in the Constructors' Championship. But you just have to think that the the, the sense of urgency is going to be there more for McLaren because there's just that uh, that uh, that extra spots you know 
one place higher in the constructors, all that extra prize money. So you have to feel that just due to the fact that this this massive and historic team has fallen on such financial hard times that uh, that 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 has to be a bit of a factor in what they're doing. I mean, it, it might not be written up on the whiteboard in the boardroom at Woking, but it's certainly got to be uh, you know in the equation somewhere. But on the flip side, I think that uh, Ferrari has done a very good uh, job this year and and really been in a position that I don't think any of us really expected. And then what about some of the other teams? Do, do we have any hope here, Mark, over the, the the next coming five races to finally see some glimmer of hope from Aston Martin, which was the, the, the sort of our pet team that we sort of adopted going into this year, obviously because of the Canadian connection, but the fact that it is Aston Martin, a historic bark back in Formula One for the first time in what, 60 plus years or something? And you know they've really disappointed uh, this year. Do you hold out any hope at this point that we might see something? I mean, I mean, form and results this year dictate otherwise. And look at, by by the look of that sort of pained expression on your face, that you're probably going to say, "No, I, I'm not expecting anything good to come from Aston at all." Well, we mentioned it right off the top of the show when we were talking about the discrepancy and the delta in points that teams have earned relative to the year before. We talked about the fact that, hey, Red Bull surged there 113 points ahead of where they were last year, 118 points, where Mercedes has shed 118 points. And I think we can justifiably say that that's basically been an exchange, right? That Red Bull's taken a lot of those points off of Mercedes. But I think the team that we both would have probably put money on as being a contender for third place in the championship this year, especially after they finished a narrow fourth last year, would have been Aston Martin. And so far, they're sitting sixth in the championship, seventh in the championship. They're, they've shed, oh my gosh, 112 championship points from the previous it's season. So much. It's huge. Lawrence has done such a great job rebuilding that team and investing in new infrastructure. And I can't imagine he's even remotely satisfied with the performance. But I think at the same time, they probably recognize that very little of what they're racing this year is going to be carried over to next year. Obviously, sure. the power unit's going to be consistent because Mercedes will continue to supply them with power units as they will for the foreseeable future. But I think for Lawrence and his team, he's probably willing to write off this season and just invest in next year, knowing that, hey, next year's a fresh start. We're investing in the new aero, the new cars, the new chassis, the new design. It's all going to be a fresh start. But for the sake of that team and the leadership within that organization, I, I think think they need to see a bounce back because by any measure this year was a very significant disappointment and maybe you could also argue that last year was very much a success because they came into that season with that mm -hmm. highly controversial pink Mercedes they'd really leaned into the aero design of the Mercedes and that really benefited them last year but this year the fact that they had borrowed so heavily from the Mercedes aero philosophy bit them in the same way that had bit Mercedes but Mercedes in some remarkable ways had really been able to recover a lot of the performance that yeah. they'd lost from the aero uh, regulation changes. But Aston Martin just hasn't been able to do so. And it's either because they've been ill-equipped to do so, their personnel hasn't been able to make the modifications or the adjustments, or at some point during the season, they just realized that, hey, whatever resources that we have need to be invested in the 2022 car. We're just going to write off the 2021 season. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with that one. I'm also going to be looking at Williams, too, over the last uh, couple of races, too. I mean, the, as we uh, mentioned uh, earlier in the show, just looking at the, the increase that they've had, 
compared to where they've been over the past uh, couple of years. I think it'll be a good indication of you know where this team is going. Of course, next year is completely up in the air, but you know, is this? Uh, I, I think uh, for me, it'll be a verification that uh, that that good things are finally starting to happen with them, or in sort of I guess opposed to the fact that maybe it's uh, been a bit of a an extended run of uh, fluky good luck. But I, I I don't think so. I think that uh, as we talked about a little bit earlier in the show, that they're, they're doing plenty of uh, good things there, and that things are uh, finally uh, turning around. So I'm going to put you on the spot now. I'm going to give you. Max, I'm going Max too. I'm going podium Max, Lewis, and I'm going to go Checo in third. What did you make of those? Uh, some of the comments about uh, Sergio Perez and the team orders and everything like that. Do you see any situation that if Sergio is leading and uh, he's holding up Max, that he doesn't move over and let Max pass? I mean, regardless if he's leading his home Grand Prix or not? You made this point on the Spaces chat earlier tonight, and it resonated with me. No, I don't think so. But I also don't think Red Bull is going to need to ask him to move over. Yeah. I think, to your point, he's going to very quietly make room. Uh, I don't think Mercedes. I don't think Red Bull. Sorry, I don't think Red Bull wants to have to or doesn't want to go on the radio and ask him to do that simply because it would be fairly controversial, given that it's Sergio's home Grand Prix and it's the first time he's raced there in two years, and we know that he doesn't have a ton of seasons left in his career. Yeah. But I don't think they're going to do that. I think that all of the potential situations will be clearly, clearly discussed before the race. And I think he knows what his role is. And I think earlier this week, he'd also made him a comment when questioned about this, that, hey, we would just love to be in a position where that's even a conversation. But (laughs) I don't think that they'll ask him. I think he'll just know to do it. Yeah. I mean, uh, when you think about it, too, that uh, when it comes down to it, that if uh, th- that situation was there and it looked like he was holding up uh, Max and uh, putting his you know race under threat, if Lewis was uh, close behind him as well, you have to remember that this is a team that has had no no, um, I guess, hesitation in pulling the plug on a driver mid-season. So I don't think they're going to have any sentimental or warm, fuzzy feelings for Sergio to win his uh, his home Grand Prix when they can uh, give uh, you know put him between uh, Max and Lewis Hamilton and help uh, Max in his title aspirations. But anyways, uh, as, uh, as you say, if that uh, turns out for them, that, that will be a good discussion uh, to, uh, to have uh, for the Red Bull team should it come to, to pass. Anyways, that is all I've got. It uh, looks to me that uh, that you've gone through your list as well. So I think this is time to actually uh, wrap it up for once. We will be back on Sunday night to, to wrap this one up. Uh, and then, you know, it's hard to believe that only four races remain after this week. You know, this season, which seemed like it was going on and on forever is starting to come to a close and I'm not quite ready for that. Anyways, if you want to get in touch, by all means do so. Send us a tweet on Twitter. Join us in the Twitter Spaces Chat every Thursday night, 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern. And uh, give us an email at scooteryf1pod at gmail.com. And that's it. That's a wrap. Enjoy your weekend. Enjoy the Mexican Grand Prix. And we'll talk to you again on Sunday night. Bye for now.